When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. One of the things I like about visiting an art gallery is that it can be so personal. You're walking through the hallways and looking at sculptures or paintings, and you can just enjoy them. Or not. And no one can tell you you're wrong. It's art. It's subjective. I can hang out with Impressionist paintings or Babylonian bronzes or Tlingit carvings, and I can be reminded of a feeling. My individual taste can be challenged or flattered. There are no wrong answers in art. All is worthy. All is freedom. So why is it that my favorite movie ever is rated a 7.1? Who even asked you, IMDb? Why do you wield such power? I'm Andrew Middleton. I'm Leah Reckman. This is Measure for Measure, a little show sizing up our world. Today's 10 out of 10, five-star, certified fresh, two-thumbs-up episode is about movie ratings. Most people know what an average is, or perhaps I should say the average person does. In 1906, the statistician Sir Francis Galton took a visit to the West of England Fat Stock and Poultry Exhibition in Plymouth on the hunt for a new data set to experiment with. Wait, wait, can you describe this to me a little bit? Tell me what the Fat Stock and Poultry Exhibition in Plymouth was like. I mean, can you can you imagine sort of sort of uh, um, perusing farm animals with like a, a funnel cake in hand? Uh, no, it's it's probably less like a state fair. And it's probably more just like a, um, uh, an exhibition of farm animals for eating. So we're we're less Ferris wheel and and more livestock. Got it. Bummer, but understood. So while at the fair, Galton saw on display an ox. And for about the price of a sandwich, participants could buy a ticket and guess the dressed weight of the ox, as in they killed it and, and, and prepared it for eating. Dressed is killed? Yes. The, dress, the dressed weight does not refer to the outfit of the ox. Okay. And whoever guessed the closest to the actual dressed weight of the ox won a prize. And 800 people bought tickets to play. So after the closest guest was awarded, the ox was eaten and all the participants went home and Sir Francis Galton bought up the stack of tickets and ran the numbers himself when he got home. So when he added up all of the guesses, the average of all of the guesses wasn't just pretty good. It was actually closer to the real weight of the ox 
than the best individual human guesser. And Galton was pretty surprised. His studies showed him that amateur guesses, or what he called the vox populi, uh, you know, the, the voice of the people, could be treated like a scientific measurement just as surely as one recorded by one scientist. So groups of people, even uneducated people, were better at making predictions than experts like Galton. By averaging zillions of inaccurate measurements, you can brush away the individual data points to see the truth that lies beneath them. And there was wisdom in crowds, and it was much easier to pull the public than it was to wrestle an ox onto a scale, for example. In the late 80s, before the web, most of the internet was just really um, text-based discussion groups. It was 1989, and if you wanted movie trivia, you had to get it the old-fashioned way. Wait for the credits. I would then, you know, rewind the tape, as you did in those days pause and type the information in directly myself. Right, okay, so I'm Cole Needham. I'm the founder and CEO of IMDb. The Internet Movie Database, or IMDb, started as a database of movies beloved by nerds. It wasn't more than a cross-reference list of which actors had appeared in what movies as a way to compile careers and create a web of credits. You know, nothing too ambitious. But as the internet matured, so too did the obsession with user-aggregated statistics. That's right. I've definitely looked online to try and figure out where the best restaurant is on Yelp. Yeah, there's Glassdoor. There's Rate My Professor. There's Hot or Not and Beer Advocate. Amazon. Amazon has really useful reviews. Goodreads. Definitely less useful reviews, although I think I'm now rating review aggregators. <laughs> Oof, that's dangerously meta. Everyone wants to make use of the collective opinions of its users to reveal a truth that no one person could reveal. Right, because you're not seeing the one time a task rabbit saved someone's life or the one time they did a really bad job. You're sort of seeing, in general, they're pretty good. Yeah, it's individuals rating their own experiences, and then we're using the average of those experiences to rate the product or service itself as a whole. The more voters, the more accurate the ratings, and the more reliable we feel the results are. And IMDb lets anybody submit their opinions on any movie, which means that their pool of voters is huge. Did you know what makes IMDb the world's largest database of movies and TV shows? It's visitors like you. They don't even quiz you to make sure that you've seen the movie that you're rating. Because it's so easy to create a new account and vote, IMDb has been very careful to make sure that their numbers aren't juked by bots or production companies or superfans who might want to boost the numbers of their personal favorites. Do you think that there are superfans who go online to, like, upvote Lord of the Rings over and over? Absolutely. That's a very... That's a very weird way to spend your time. Agreed. And it's kind of important to, to keep that in consideration because it's one of the reasons that they weight their scores so that some votes count for more. So users who have voted more are more liable and users who only rate movies zeros or tens look a bit suspicious. Because they basically want everything other than Lord of the Rings 2 or whatever to have a zero. Right. If you're actually trying to... to bump the statistics, it doesn't make sense to rate something like an 8 or a 9. But Netflix implicitly trusts a value like an 8 or a 9 more than a 0 or a 10, which just sort of implies that like this movie either gave you the highest possible opinion of a thing or the lowest possible, like that the likelihood that that's true. So while they seem like perfect and fair democratic systems with small barriers to entry, supposedly objective sources like IMDb and Wikipedia and other sort of crowdsourced resources are still plenty biased, and they really know it. 
Like the biggest source of bias is simply that websites can only count the ratings from people who create accounts, log in, and otherwise go out of their way to make sure that their opinion is heard. And in what I'm sure is a surprise to no one, men are vastly more likely to tell the internet exactly what they think. Wait, hold on a second. Men wanted to share their opinions with strangers and assume that they're universal truths? Yeah, and some of them even want to start podcasts. That is shocking, Andrew. The Shawshank Redemption, which is the top voted movie on IMDb, it had 1.4 million votes from men and only 280,000 from women. I feel like that statistic substantiates my sense that I should not watch this movie. Every female vote is outnumbered five to one. And as a result, the top rated IMDb movies reflect what guys love in movies. Most of the highest rated movies are movies about guys, guy problems, guy emotions, guy stories, war, honor, sports, violence. I have this rule where I won't watch a movie where two men in suits are trying to do a uh, logistic together. And for someone like you, IMDb is mostly useless. In fact, in order to find a movie that has a female protagonist, you have to go down to the 22nd highest rated film, uh, which is The Silence of the Lambs. I crept up into the barn. I was so scared to look inside, but I had to. What did you see, Clarice? What did you see? Now, usually in podcasting, this is the time where we'd play a clip of Jodie Foster delivering an iconic line in the movie. Did, did you find that for us, Andrew? Well, and this is kind of the point. Most of the really good lines are delivered by the male actors. And Jodie Foster, I think, delivers a really great performance in this movie, but like she doesn't have like the really great lines. Uh-huh. So this is a movie that has a female protagonist, but doesn't necessarily like pass the Bechdel test. Oh, for sure, yeah. And it's the it is the 22nd highest rated film in IMDB and the highest with a female protagonist. Right, okay, so rough times for ladies in movie ratings. Yeah. But that's just selection bias in who's inputting data, right? Because women watch movies. Right, women watch lots of movies, but fewer of them feel compelled to go online and rate them. Okay, right. The problem is the solicitation method for data. Right. Most of the films on IMDb's top-rated lists are recent, and probably not because new movies are inherently better, but because they're the ones reviewers saw most recently. And then you can see that most of the movies are in English, despite Bollywood producing more movies and selling more tickets than Hollywood, just six from India make it to the top 250. To arrange each of the more than half a million movie titles into an order, IMDb creates a weighted mean. Only regular voters are counted, and no one knows exactly who the site recognizes as one, or even how you can become one because they don't want anyone to figure out how to game the system. Right, so if you have to rate like four movies at a four so that your one rating at a 10, your Lord of the Rings 2 rating at a 10 is substantiated, everyone would do that if they could, if they could know the code. Right, and they don't want people to like know what the cheat code is to make their opinion count more. And those filtered ratings are run through a credibility formula, which is used by insurance companies and actuarists, with the premise being that if 10,000 people give a movie a 10 rating, it should have more weight than a movie that, say, five people gave a 10. So we're just, we're weighting those reviews by not only what the score is, but how many people voted. Right, okay, so they're very concerned about building algorithmic complexity because they, they want to get as close to the truth as they can in their data about what is the best movie. 
we're a long way from Galton at this point. The math involved here is getting very complicated and very secret. That's because movie ratings are big business. The US movie industry pulls in $10 billion a year in box office revenue, and reviews can divert that flow of profits towards some production companies and away from others. To strategize how to get the biggest slice of that $10 billion pie, studios relied on models that predicted box office performance for each movie that they set out to make. Until 2015, they worked out pretty well. That fateful summer, a slew of huge summer blockbuster action movies underperformed from model predictions. Do you remember seeing Fantastic Four? No. The Man from U.N.C.L.E.? I don't know what that is. We Are Your Friends? I don't know what that is either. Terminator Genesis? Definitely have watched some movies over time, but I feel like you're just giving me a list of random names. Well, these were supposed to be really huge movies. They had everything. They had action. They had romance. They had stars. They had budgets. But no one really saw them. Movie critic aggregator sites like Rotten Tomatoes and social media-driven word of mouth sliced through the hype machine, and the bad reviews encouraged people to stay home or watch something else. Predicting how many people would spend money on a movie was way easier than predicting what big audiences actually liked to watch. The prediction model broke, and the industry has been struggling to catch up ever since. That meant that movie review websites have become even more powerful. Even with reliable plot formulas and huge advertising campaigns, movie watchers aren't falling for bad movies like they used to. And IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes, and others are helping define what movies are hits, which are flops, and which movies will likely never even get made. With all that responsibility, how does a site like IMDb see its role in the movie industry as an arbiter of taste? Their official stance is actually surprisingly grounded and humble. Here's how the website describes its own process. IMDb ratings are, quote, accurate, unquote, in the sense that they are calculated using a consistent, unbiased formula. But we, meaning uh, IMDb, the authors who wrote this description, don't claim that IMDb ratings are accurate, quote unquote, in an absolute qualitative sense. We offer these ratings as a simplified way to see what other IMDb users all over the world think about titles listed on our site. We believe these ratings provide a fun and useful indication of the opinion of a movie held by the general public. But ultimately, each individual is the arbiter of what is, quote, good or, quote, bad when it comes to judging the value of a work of art. That is very postmodern. <laughs> Isn't that great, though? Yeah. IMDb knows their numbers, no matter how thought out, are limited. They're subjective. They're a measure of a specific public's feelings at a particular moment in time. But the number implies a definitiveness that we keep tripping over. Because really, it doesn't matter how much bias is corrected for or how many more people rate movies. We can't math our way out of the fact that movies don't have measurable qualities like goodness that you can pull for. And ratings aren't great metrics for whether or not you like a movie unless your taste happens to line up with the very particular tastes of the average reviewer. Maybe the closest we can get to a scientific measure of whether you'll like a movie is what streaming services do. Companies like Netflix or Amazon Prime have algorithms that constantly track what you watch, and they compare your preferences to other people who like similar things and have characteristics like you. And then they suggest that you watch movies that people like you like. There's so many ways to judge a movie. There are movies that we had fun watching but don't think they're great. Get off my plane. <laughs> Movies we didn't like but think we should have. Darling, don't sit there looking at me like that. Holly, I'm in love with you. Movies that are enjoyable to watch with friends specifically because of how bad they are. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. 
Oh, hi, Mark. Movies that don't entertain us, but have impressive and influential qualities to them. Rosebud. Movies that are important to us because they were the setting of our first kiss. Nobody puts baby in a corner. The thing is, averages can hide a huge amount of variability. And I think we need to get comfortable with the fact that these numbers are limited, but not useless. In fact, they're useful because they're simple and incomplete. Then each one of those categories would get its own rating system, and a movie review would become a whole dossier of figures and graphs. But at that point, you might as well just watch the movie. Measure for Measure is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. The show is executive produced by Leah Rechtman, created by me, Andrew Middleton, and sound engineered by Greg Friedel. Our music is by Siraj Sindhu and Mackenzie Kugel. We'd like to give a 10 out of 10, five gold stars, and two thumbs up to Zachary Davis. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I assure you that one actually matters. You can learn more on our website, ministryofideas.org slash measure, or find us on Twitter at Measure4M and Instagram at Measure4MeasurePod. That's with the number four. You can also email us at measure4measurepod at gmail.com. That's measure for measure with the number four. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And that's all, folks.